0: You are listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Lintenmayer. My guest for episode 114 is Nashville songstress Michaela Ann. She put out an indie release as Michaela Ann Neller in 2011, but her 3 albums stretch in the big time started in 2014. You're right now hearing By Our Design, the opening track from her latest 2019's Desert Dove. We're going to be discussing the title track from that album and look back to the previous album, Bright Lights and the Fame 2016. The song is Worrying Mind. And then look further back to Is That What Mama Meant, a song from Ease My Mind 2014. We'll conclude by hearing another one from the new album, Somebody New. For more information, please see MichaelaAnn.com. For more about this podcast, see NakedlyExaminedMusic.com. And if you'd like to support the show, go to Patreon.com slash NakedlyExaminedMusic. So I will play it a little bit of, by your design, the opening track from Desert Dove, because I can't not play that lovely string thing that starts things off. Oh. <laughs> uh, talk first about the title track from that album. Then we're going to go back in time a little bit. So this is your fourth album. Do you want to say a little bit about where were you at with this album in terms of your evolving style? And what are you trying to do with
1: this song? Man, Desert Dove is, I picked Desert Dove to talk about, but it's a really, for me, it's a complex Song to talk about because it has a lot of different layers and meanings. But I have technically this is my fourth record. It's kind of depends on who you talk to. It's sometimes called my third record, but it's my third kind of professional public record. But when I was writing for this record, I think some of my naivete is, I guess, what how, how you pronounce it as has kind of diminished a bit around this time in my life. I, in my very early thirties and my other records, I was in my twenties and had different kind of preconceived ideas about what kind of life you would live and a very kind of moral superiority in a lot of ways. And as I have grown and toured a lot and lived a very kind of unstable, all over the place life of traveling and moving and not really being home a lot. I've been learning that as a, as a human being, our emotions, our actions, our morals, all of that stuff are pretty gray and complex and complicated and layered. And I think that's where the beauty is, but it kind of turned my world upside down. Desert Dove is a centerpiece of that kind of exploration for me. And the song specifically centers around a woman I met at a bar who told me she was a stripper. And I had long thought that I was going to write a song for some reason about a kind of old West prostitute and have long been really drawn to the really challenging dynamics of Females and men and sexuality and desire and power and how it's all wrapped up in these different ways. So Desert Dub was this little story that just scratches the surface inspired by the woman Madeline I met, who is a real person.
0: Let's talk more about the story here before we get in. I mean, the obvious difference between this and your previous stuff is just the increased production values, <laughs> twice as much reverb maybe <laughs> as the previous albums, but that seems a little, am I right that that's kind of beside the point that it's your songwriting style is, seems very story oriented, literary and you go in with your acoustic guitar and then sort of what happens from then? Well, that's a matter of kind of what environment you're in production wise. Is that seem correct that it's more or less a, a through line as far as your actual writing style?
1: Yeah, I write in, you know, the same way that I always have. I was just thinking about it because I was working on some songs right before I got on this call with you that I'm in a phase where I'm writing a lot on piano, which I think is really it informs the songs differently. But I mostly the past several years have written on guitar. So all of these songs start out as just very minimal little storyboard, and then I, you know, in this instance for the record Desert Dub, then I took it to the producers i worked with and then we brought in more musicians and built it from there kind of around the acoustic guitar but then also tried to take away that acoustic guitar as the foundation and not just especially my last record was really guitar driven and based on this kind of country rock band formation and and this record we tried to break out of that mold and you know there's a lot of like strings and synths and mellotron and organ and I love that kind of ambient sound and a vibrational like feeling that I had never had on a record. And I think I was kind of trying to break out of the own box that I had put myself in for whatever reason of like, Oh, well, I do kind of like simple country, straight ahead songs. And this time I was, I brought in people that I wanted to kind of push out of that and tell myself well wait no what are the sounds that you like to hear what are you attracted to and and how do you bring that in in your own recording
0: yeah it's interesting that even back on the older albums having steel guitar in there that automatically has a string like you know no attack sort of ethereal just crank up the reverb a little bit and they're halfway to the sound we're hearing here
1: yeah i love pedal steel and there is some pedal steel on this record it's funny to me that almost that it's taken me this long to kind of get to this sound because I, more than anything, I love the human voice and I love emotion. And I think I spent a long time kind of trying to deny that because I came from, I went to a jazz conservatory and I was always kind of surrounded by very, you know, intellectual musicians who maybe didn't, in my interpretation, put so much focus on the emotion. And I really have been learning that that's what draws me. All of my favorite records and songs, it's about the feeling and the human voice. And strings and pedal steel, they're the closest thing to a voice. They just have that kind of heartaching cry in their nature of of the way that they're played, of their tone. So it makes sense to me. I'm kind of realizing this right now in this moment. <laughs> I'm surprised it's taken me so long, but it all, it all makes sense that that's kind of became a, became a focus on this record.
0: Actually, right before you got on, I pulled up I Want to Fall in Love by Chris Isaac just because the chord progression sort of suggested that. And with his voice, you know, that the famous lick, like that's actually going the other direction, taking the voice and making it soar such that it it actually sounds more like an instrument. And, And we get a little of that in the chorus here, just the lady of the night, this big choral thing, you know, so that's the hook, the lady of the night, which is a, if you pitch that, I assume that was not the first idea, right? In terms of what musical element comes first, because it's not like you're walking down the street and snapping your fingers and saying, lady of the night, like that. that's the first, like it sounds more like it came out of the song as it was going. Can you say a little about sort of when you write lyrics or, you know, in this in particular, how the story is coming together, which elements are coming first? Is it the hook? Is it the verse?
1: Desert Dove is one of those songs that it just came out. I find songwriting pretty laborious and hard. And I have kind of like a tortured relationship with songwriting that I go through phases where everything just feels really hard and I have to like labor over things for a long time. And then I'll have some miraculous moments where it feels easy and just songs come out. but. Desert Dove was a one of those very special moments where I literally opened my mouth and the first verse came out. I wrote that song within a day and I was standing in a kitchen. I was at some family's house in Cave Creek, Arizona. They were on vacation and they gave me their house and I went and just did kind of self-imposed writing retreat. And I remember I was thinking about that stripper that I had met and then I saw this book called Soiled Doves at the Little Cave Creek Town Museum about prostitutes of the Old West. And I read a passage that talked about how one of the main causes of death for prostitutes was loneliness. I don't know why, how they. <laughs>
0: yeah. What, what does that mean? Clinically dying of loneliness?
1: <laughs> yeah. I don't know how that's proven. But...
0: Suicide. Maybe. I don't know.
1: Maybe, but just the idea of these women that their purpose was just to basically be a vessel for men, for comfort, for sex, for whatever. But that they, and they were touched and with people, with men all the time. But they were so incredibly lonely that apparently it's been passed down through history that they died from that loneliness. And that kind of role in our history and society and our gender, all of that was just kind of ringing through my head and felt just profoundly sad. And then I thought about that stripper and I texted my friend who was with me that night and asked him if he remembered her name. And he texted me back and said, Madeline. And then I literally just opened, I was like standing in the kitchen, looked at my phone, turned around to start to make a sandwich and went, I met a dove in the desert. And it just came out.
0: Why a dove for that anyway, any idea?
1: Well, I think because the book is called Soiled Doves.
0: Oh, gotcha.
1: So women being referred to as a dove and soiled doves, meaning the tarnished sex worker type of thing, which is also an interesting dynamic to me that these women that are like providing the service that clearly men and society felt was vital to them, but they're also shunned and considered soiled and bad.
0: So I'm wondering in in that context, that you introduce her, the first descriptive thing is she was a glow. Is that because it's the opposite of tarnished, or what were you trying to do in introducing her that way?
1: Well, that was a very literal description. The woman, the real-life Madeline that I met, she had a white dress that was off her shoulders, and I remember talking to her at the bar, and she was very beautiful and very charming and had this kind of just exuberant energy about her, and I was really drawn to her, and had a conversation and then she, you know, then she started talking about what she was doing and she was on a road trip and what she did for work. And, you know, and we both, we started talking about essential oils. And it was that one word, just a glow, was like a way to express that this woman, because then by the third verse, it talks about like, I wonder if he sees her and like, does he think he's the only one with pain to try and juxtapose that she is this woman who has this exuberant energy and beauty and vibrance but also pain and stories that a lot of times we don't care to know or tell or honor.
0: So are you kind of combining these two characters so that you are essentially imposing on this actual person you met the sorrow that you had read about in this book or you actually got into it with her and were uncovering some of the pain there?
1: Yeah, I did not get into it with her. So I'm imposing. I have, that's to me, she, it starts off as this real life person and evolves into a symbol of the many different layers of any woman, not necessarily a a prostitute or sex worker, could be a very pious woman, but is, who is submissive. Just kind of to me, that's what I mean when I'm like, there's so many layers to this song that I hold. And back to your original question about Lady of the Night, that is the first thing that came out for the chorus. And it's funny because I remember meeting with a publisher at some point and he hated that line. And he was like, ugh, I don't like this. Lady of the Night? No. And I was like, okay, I took it, you know, and then I sat on it for a while and was like, well, that's what feels right to me. Maybe it's not radio-friendly, but (laughs) that's okay.
0: Well, it's such a weird term that we've inherited. Like, if it didn't already have that term it might just be a really cool image, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) creatures of the night, you know, it just sounds mysterious, and but because, you know, we've inherited it this way, I think it still has that connotation of mysterious and alluring or whatever, you know, in addition to its literal historical meaning. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it works. But I think calling the song Lady of the Night or something like makes it sound like, what is this? What 1970s thing is this or something?
1: Right. Right. Yeah, Desert Dove is a little more, well, because I don't even say Desert Dove in the song. So that is, I just say I met a dove in the desert. So that's.
0: That's close enough.
1: Yeah, a little more covert.
0: (laughs) And it's very nice and succinct the way you you set up in the second verse there, had the color of bone, drank tequila straight. Like we're setting up cowboy tropes, but really, really tightly. You know, there's no cactuses and mentioning names of cities in Texas and like pouring it on thick. You don't have to.
1: And that line is funny because I had started a different song years ago. And I, in that song, I said he drank tequila straight and talked in the same way. And I remember I was, my brother was visiting and my brother is, he's very musical and always played music, but he's not a musician by profession, but I, he's my older brother. And I've always just, you know, his opinion matters to me a lot. And he doesn't interact that much on on my music. And I remember he was visiting and he overheard it. And he walked past me and said, I was in the shower. And I just heard you sing that line about the drink tequila straight and talked in the same way. He's like, I really liked it. I was like, Oh, thanks. And I ended up abandoning that song. But I used it for this song. And it's notable to me because I'm like, his one little comment made me want to keep it probably to just like feel, you know, that endless, no matter how old you are, you want to feel like approval from your older sibling. <laughs>
0: yeah. Anything else that comes to mind about how these lyrics came together? Like, especially when you get to the third verse, does he think he's dealing with pain? As you mentioned, does he wonder what kind of things her body knows? That's a sort of a more oblique, I don't know, way of getting at that. I like that particular line. Do you know where that came from or what you're thinking there?
1: I don't. And I remember I had a, another verse that was longer that kind of set up the story more and I ended up cutting it and thinking those couple of lines said enough for just kind of keeping it open enough but also being in my association with those sentences it feels very clear what I'm trying to say and I'm always interested and curious to hear what other people's interpretations are but I again was thinking back to Women, whether it's in the role of wife or you know mother or sex worker or stripper or whatever, but being these roles that are in a submissive place and also serving of others, and you know flipping and, and again that book Soiled Deb was re- was really on my mind of how it was a service to these men. Who who are lonely, who are, you know, all the things that they needed from women. And I would witness it throughout life and relationships on varying degrees and levels, whether it's emotional work or what, where women are being the ones serving and then flipping it and wondering, well, but are you ever looking at her thinking, what are the stories that your body tells? What are the things that you know? What are the pains that you have? Or is this moment only about what she's, doing for you
0: yeah no i totally get that and the empathy the looking in the eyes the wondering about your painting your stories it's just i can guarantee no man has ever wondered what things do her body knows <laughs> does her <laughs> like not literally like that's just a, it's a little more poetic
1: i am just fascinated by relationships and i think about the things about whether it's just a sexual relationship or a loving relationship just the kind of the aspect of that we trade people a lot of times. For instance, the characters in the story, does the man who's with her wonder who she's been with before? How did they love her? How did they hurt her? Or does he not want to know because he only wants to know what she's there for him? Does for some reason, those prior relations, do they spoil her? Do they soil her? Do they does he not care? But those are the things that make her who she is right now in this moment. And, you know, the song right now is really focusing on the on the gender. But I will say that, of course, like it's it can be flipped. But this song is just containing itself to the role of a woman.
0: Okay, before we move on to the second song, let's just say a little more about the production and the stages this went through. This was, was on guitar. It seems like any of your songs you can just do solo. You demoed it first, the producer demoed something back to you, like how many stages does this go through before we actually get to the finished product here?
1: Yeah, we demoed it, just me and acoustic guitar. And there's a lot of Chris Isaac reference, which is interesting to me because I really haven't spent much time, I don't know his music very well. And I've kind of made a point to be like, I need to go back and listen to him because a lot of people have referenced him in, this, in that specific song. We had a rhythm section and a guitarist come in and we just organically played it and said, okay, what's going to come out? And we didn't add any guitar solo or anything. It's pretty much straightforward. You know, there's a couple things arrangement wise where we repeated a line or stopped and then the build on the end. And then Kelly Winrich, who was one half of the production, he really kind of did more post production stuff of adding the keys. And I think there's some like wind chimes in the beginning that were from like outside at the studio. So he really kind of brought in that extra tonality that I feel like makes it this kind of dreamy soundscape for me. Like when I listen to that song, I kind of disappear into some other place, but it doesn't even feel like I'm listening to my song. I feel a little detached from it and then also transported, which is a testament to the musicians and the production, I think.
0: Do you ever feel like, I like this, but I also like the original song. Like, if <laughs> we can have a fan only, you know, demos edition or something, or do you feel like, no, no, no.
1: Oh, like the solo version?
0: Well, I mean, you get to just play that live whenever you want. So I guess that's not something that's gone from the world.
1: Those are questions that can sometimes plague me of like, <laughs> how much do we add? And luckily in today's world, then I, I can just make some acoustic versions for sure. But I feel like that's one I'm very happy with the way that it came out. And I don't, at least at this point, I haven't gone back and thought, man, I wish we would have like taken this stuff out. That feels pretty spot on for me.
0: Well, I mentioned like with Byer Design, that Wonderful Strings at the beginning, which I saw live. Well, you have one violin doing that. So the, the riff is there. But it doesn't have that effect of this giant wall of Phil Spector sound or what, wherever that, well, I'm not sure what the correct string reference of that, but it's, I couldn't even tell if it was real strings or a very fancy sample. It was, it's a very lush arrangement.
1: Where did you see it live?
0: Uh, I just pulled it up on YouTube.
1: Yeah. So Kristen Weber, who is the fiddle player violinist who plays it, who's prob- on the video, she wrote that string part and. Then she layered it. So it's a bunch of her.
0: <laughs> okay. Yeah. No, that's great to <laughs> have an orchestra of yourself.
1: In the live version, we double it um, with a string pad on a keyboard on a Nord. Um, but yeah, that kind of full, we recorded out in California right on the, on the ocean. And that was, I remember that day that they came up with that part and Kristen was playing it. Kristen and Kelly were really working it out. And I was like, oh my gosh, it feels like whale sounds. I love that. My dad was a submarine captain, so I grew up always by the ocean and I've had a deep love for whales in general. So I was like, this is making so many dreams come true. (laughs) So yeah, there wasn't a specific musical reference. That was a really kind of natural whale inspired, (laughs) ocean inspired string part.
0: Well, let's strip some of that away. Go back to 2016. The album is Bright Lights and the Fame. The song you picked was Worrying Mind. So it's still what a six or seven piece. Band behind you with banjo and organ and different things, but it'll be obvious that this is a different production team. Do you want to say a little about this song, "Worrying Mind," before we hear it?
1: I wrote this shortly after moving to Nashville from New York City, and I had made a whole record before this record called "Ease My Mind," which was really I'm an avid overthinker, and I kind of thought moving to Nashville would open up things in that, you know my daily life; it wouldn't be as stressful. And I found myself still really angsty and anxious, even with a nice yard and driveway and all the things I, I wanted. And then I wrote Worrying Mind, contemplating and reflecting on when life feels a little out of your hands and you're kind of tripped up in your own, your own thinking.
2: So never can rest At the end of every day Down on my knees I sit and I pray I got plenty of shit Soul never can raise
0: I was trying to see, I thought I had seen, was this a co-write with the drummer?
1: Yeah, so the drummer is my husband.
0: Oh, there you go. (laughs) That's convenient.
1: (laughs) I wrote the song and then I was stuck on the second verse. And I remember I was sitting in my kitchen on the little stairs that went into the music room. And I was like, I just don't know how to say what I'm trying to say in the second verse. I think I had wild one and quiet one. He finished those two lines.
0: The one where the wind comes, ride somewhere new. What if I'm never the quiet one? The one where the day is done, nothing's weighing on you. Yes. So it's not a matter of, this one started with the drums or something weird like that. No, it's just an actual lyrical co-write.
1: Yeah, any co-writing, any like names on songs, it's mostly a lyrical contribution.
0: So I really like the vocal delivery in this one. Yeah, with all these nice little pauses in there yeah, can you say a little about you know, I was I was trying to think about the arrangement choices when you have that pause, like, well, do you have one of the guitars strum during that pause? Do you do something? For the most part, they're actually matching you, like the bass and the drums don't hit in that little break.
2: What if this is the last time I change my
0: mind? Was this the melody from the start or did this evolve a little, or how did this work?
1: That was the melody from the start. I don't even think I thought about it. I think that's just how it came out. There's almost like a talking aspect to it with the kind of what if I kind of, when I sing it live, I almost say what if more than sing it, depending on the night. It really was one of those songs where I was just putting down my thoughts in a very conversational way. Wearing mind is kind of the epitome to me of my just. Constant evaluation and reflection, which is honestly very exhausting <laughs> as a person. And I'm always wondering, like, do other people think about this as much as I do? Like constantly examining every single choice I make in my life. And what if I lived somewhere else or what if I did this differently? And, and that's what worrying mind is. And essentially at the same time, feeling like I'm overthinking everything all the time, but I also have so much to do that I don't even know if I'm actually living. (laughs) So I think that aspect is relatable.
0: This podcast, "Nakedly Examined Music," is a child of the partially examined life, which that is the whole premise of that philosophy podcast: is (laughs) overthinking everything. Can we get to a point where your life is merely partially examined, and that's okay?
1: Yeah, I think that's a goal. (laughs) I'll have the response of some people be like. Man, your lyrics are really intense and you think a lot. When I hear that, I'm like, wait, so you don't? What's that like to just like to just go through life and be like, this is what I do. I get up, I go to work, I have my home, my family, you know. If my mind is quiet, I'm like, Uh oh, what's wrong? I'm missing something. I should be thinking about something, which is challenging <laughs> to go through life that way.
0: Well, it's nice that you turn this sort of neurotic (laughs) sentiment into a love song still because loving me in this pre-chorus loving me is more than I could ever ask of you. It takes a kind of patience only saints and angels use. Yeah. So it's still can be a nice affectionate song. This could be a talking heads, nervous, twitchy rhythm guitar, sort of thing with this sentiment, but you make it, no, it's still a nice country song.
1: Yeah. Yeah, And that line is specifically, I would say for my husband and my mom, (laughs) who hear the incessant chatter that drones on for a long time. And and I feel for the loved ones who... And also, I am that person for people as well, for friends of mine who have their things that they obsess over and overthink. And I think that's part of love. And I kind of tread lightly on... I don't ever want to take the approach where it sounds like I'm struggling with feeling like unlovable, which I think we all feel, but I also always want to encourage others to feel that no matter what you are or what you go through or whatever that you are lovable. So there's that kind of constant like every side of it trying to be included, which is hard to do and when you're writing songs that are only like three to four minutes long.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's gotta be just a little glimpse, a little slice. Yeah. Let me play a little bit, just the beginning of the chorus Here, I just want to point out how there's not a pause that I would think just looking at the page, because I've got a worry in mind, it ain't no peaceful, but no, you just like, let's shove those, it ain't no, before we even get to the one, just so it's this, makes it a little more frantic, which is strange in such a nice, cheery little melody.
1: Yeah, it's almost like, now that I'm thinking about it, that the verses are kind of like a slow, contemplative, like, conversational thinking and then the chorus is like here's my stream of consciousness it's just coming out and this is my anxiety
0: <laughs> and there are probably not a lot of courses not a lot of country songs that have pray and then shit in the next line <laughs> <laughs> those usually don't go together
1: <laughs> yeah i've managed i think this is the only song that i person, and i'm I've managed to keep it. I was on the radio recently for a live performance and my manager, I said something probably off color. And my manager was like, that reminds me you're about to be on the radio. So uh, just careful of your mouth. <laughs>
0: so. Do you change that line when you're live? I have certain songs that I I'll gauge the audience. And if there are a lot of kids, like, let me swap something
1: out. If there are a lot of children, I will change it. And if we're on the radio, I will obviously change it or kind of like mumble it or say stuff. But again, like I'm constantly examining that because my father was a sailor who notoriously have the worst potty mouths. And my mother just happened to be worse than him. (laughs) So I grew up hearing certain language that they're just words. But at the same time, my father is also an officer. So I learned how to be poised and respectable and put on that nice presentation. So I'm very conscious of etiquette and grace, but at the same time, I'm like, "Eh, the word shit is not that bad. Well, no,
0: no. (laughs) I mean, there's an evolving standards and I wouldn't even like, you know, put explicit for that on CD Baby or whatever if I was registering that. But it is interesting just in general that songwriting is such a personal thing. You're writing from your heart. It's you in privacy, but it's also you on a podium. So Mm
3: -hmm, (laughs) putting mm -hmm.
0: those two things together, you know, maybe sometimes for me that, that just comes up in a difference between like what I will record, which can be really weird (laughs) potentially. And what I actually want to then deliver to an audience, which you want to pick something that's actually going to go over and be presentable.
1: Yeah. There's something to be conscious of, you know, when you're pouring out your heart and soul and doing what you need to do in a song and then considering, okay, and how is this going to connect or not connect to people given context and all of that stuff.
0: So let's talk a little more about arrangements. So you started even from the first album you're playing with a band, which I assume you, you mostly rehearse these things live with the band, but I know not with the most recent album, you said you came in solo, but typically have you, you know, it's you and three other people at least kind of work these up and figure out where all the hits are and where the pauses are and things and then record it?
1: Yeah. And some things change in real time in the studio. But in most instances of all my recording, we would do like some rehearsals beforehand and kind of arrange things. This record was, we would do it song by song, we'd rehearse and then say, All right, that feels good. Now let's record it. That's a fun part to me, because it gives the song a different life of just hearing other instruments on it. and things like hits and pauses and it kind of informs phrasing and it helps it evolve. I've never thought of myself as someone who would just be like a solo acoustic, maybe because I just play rhythm guitar and I'm not like a really advanced guitar player that I feel like it would be filling out. I will definitely perform solo, but I really like multiple instruments and kind of a band giving life to songs.
0: So, oh, Washington on that first album, that's not you doing that fancy acoustic thing? No, is, okay. no,
1: that's <laughs> Michael Daves, who's a great guitarist from Brooklyn.
0: So that that could be hard to, you write something on acoustic, but maybe it should be better than what I'm doing. Yes. You know, get somebody <laughs> else, you play against me, now I'll just stop. Just do yes. this. That. that's fine. Does the excessive self-reflection, does this translate into being a little into overthinking what the other players are going to do. I know when I was very young, I was pretty much a tyrant with my bands, and that did not go over well, and it was only after having lots of people quit and going through several lineups that I'm just like, I will just be happy and consider the song done with me and my guitar and then let the band evolve it into whatever it's going to do
1: I think there's a balance for sure. With musicians, I'm very open to like what they want and what they're hearing because they play their instrument and I don't. So they know what they're capable of. They know the vocabulary. At the same time, I have grown into... When I was younger, I probably was even more generous of like, oh, whatever you think, you're playing with me. So I want you to feel creatively fulfilled. And And I've grown to a place of being like, creative fulfillment is not necessarily the purpose In this moment of recording my songs to make sure every single person here feels creatively fulfilled because that might not align. So I'm not really a tyrant, but I have the rule of at the end of the day, if there's any disagreements, I always win because it's my music and my record.
0: (laughs) So with this song in particular, were there negotiations about, okay, now I'm going to, what if this is the worst fight? And then the steel guitar is going to do a little thing there or you just kind of let them feel it out and let them look
1: at each other that felt pretty natural and we'll kind of do that like we'll sit in a room and be like okay why don't the guitar you fill on the first verse and then steel you fill on the second verse and that kind of stuff and that feels pretty easy and natural and i don't remember any disagreements or arguments i remember the only disagreement i remember about in mind is that i wanted the banjo louder in the mix. Then the producer and, and mixing engineer wanted it. It was the same person, and ultimately we had put it at the level that I wanted. <laughs> that was the only disagreement.
0: <laughs> I was going to ask you about that. So that's a an overdub just to kind of change it up as things go on.
1: Yeah. And that's Noam Pekelny, who's an amazing banjo player. We did not utilize his skill. It's <laughs> a pretty simple part he's playing. He's ridiculous. He's from the Punch Brothers and he came in after the fact and didn't overdub with that part.
0: Yeah. No, I like banjo parts like this, but I always feel like when you have banjo in a band, you don't need drums because like <laughs> that's what they're for. You know, to do that banjo <laughs> thing. <laughs> and that's that then can provide the rhythm bed for everything else to jump around on or, you know, put your bass on top of. But it's a nice little touch. This other steel, I put 12 string, but I'm sure it's just two guitars playing in parallel octaves. This, uh, so like going right into the chorus. Got- do, 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 do. So is that, you know, somebody's doing a riff and then the producer wants to double it with something or turn on the octave pedal? How does
1: it- Yeah. So that was Dan Nobler was the producer on that record and he also played. All the guitar parts. So I think he played that and then probably went back and doubled it or tripled it. I don't know. There's a lot of guitars on that, right? <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Let's get the, let's go back to the third one. Ease My Mind from 2014. Is This What Mama Meant is the song, which is sort of the most traditional country that we've heard yet, which is not, I heard even back on your first to nowhere 2011 album, which folks can find on Bandcamp or YouTube, even though it's not on Spotify and places like that, like that's not totally straight country. Like, you know, you've got, it seems like you've been stylistically experimenting and a lot of variation between from song to song. So this is not a simple story of you started with traditional sounding country stuff and have then now grown into this more indie thing. But this particular song does sound, you know, it's not a waltz, but it's got rim shots. And yeah, I want to say a little about where this one came from before we hear it.
1: Well, yeah. I I wouldn't say I was really rooted in traditional country. It was one of the many influences that also just felt more natural to my voice. But I was... I made that first record to nowhere when I was right out of college and I had gone to a jazz conservatory. And I was listening to a lot of bluegrass. So I have a very eclectic range of influences that I've pulled on and definitely been experimenting with to kind of evolve into what feels like overall me. And... Is this what mama meant? I was down in Texas in Austin and I was in a songwriting contest at the Kerrville folk festival and I didn't win. So I think what it was like, you had to be there for two weekends in a row. If you could have won, you'd have to come back the next weekend. And I didn't know what to do if I should book my flight or what. So I didn't win, but I ended up being stuck there for a week and I stayed with my cousin. And while they were at work all day, I stayed home and wrote, is this what mama meant? That song is really about just enduring the hard challenges of life and not kind of buying into this fairy tale, which I I think sets us up to be really unhappy to think that things are supposed to be great every day with our relationships, with our families, with our, our jobs, our life. And that's a message my mom has really tried to instill in me and my brother since we were children, just this kind of brutal honesty of relationships and love are not wonderful day in and day out. They take work. They're hard. Real, true, deep love does not mean that you feel infatuated with each other every single day. And that was kind of my reflection. I had been with my boyfriend at the time for several years, who's now my husband, and we were living together. And so I think I was just thinking about the growth and the honesty of that. Is
2: this what mama made? When she told me how
0: Guess let's just start with the music this time so different producer completely than the following album right
1: yes different producer completely jeff malinowski was a really close friend of mine and that was back in brooklyn and i played is this what mama meant more as a traditional like country slow shuffle and he was the one who came up with that kind of different feel almost like he invoked a little neil young that was kind of the reference of like, what if we change the feel a little bit and did this different beat so it didn't feel so traditional country? And then Jefferson Hamer came in. People always think it's a woman singing harmony, but it's Jefferson Hamer who has a beautiful, beautiful voice that evolved from there. But it's one of those songs that's interesting because when I play it solo, I always, even this many years later, I always revert back to playing it kind of sounding more traditional country.
0: So does that mean it's less like the pauses there to making good memories and everything kind of starts up again. I would think playing solo, you probably milk that more.
1: Yeah. Especially the very last line. Got to be dramatic.
0: (laughs) Is that what? Yeah.
1: Holding out the very last note before the last line of, is this what mama meant?
0: Sure. And you got a nice uh, steel guitar solo in here. So, had you been playing with? I've always found steel guitar players—you know—they're a rare breed. <laughs> Let's say there are many less steel players wandering around than regular guitarists. So, I've never had one in the band. You know, maybe a session here or there. But was that sort of an essential part of your sound as, as a country artist from the start, or that's just something you lucked into in getting the record deal?
1: No, that's Philip Stirk. Who he is one of the very first musicians I I played with and toured with when I first lived in New York. And he, to this day, is my favorite pedal steel player. And that's just a really lucky relationship because he has such an interesting approach to pedal steel. And he has a really diverse background as well and kind of approaches it. And um, he has the vocabulary for the traditional country stuff, but he likes to use it in a different way. Yeah, I was really lucky living in New York. I, him and, and a guy named Raphael McGregor, who is a lap steel player, they were some of my first musical community. And Philip has played... He played all the steel parts on Ease My Mind, and he played on all the steel parts on Bright Lights and the Fame. And there's a song called If Only that has this big epic solo that everyone thinks is a guitar, and that's pedal steel. That's Philip Stirk, And he also plays, I think, half of his steel parts on this new record. I love Pedal Steel because, again, it's so sad and lonesome sounding and sounds like a voice. And I just lucked out that I met Philip and he's still a really close friend. And now he's in the pop country band Midland. He's doing well.
0: So when you're writing in a more traditional style here, I mean, you're still not saying, you know, I came down from Austin. It's not. I would see when people start dropping names of cities in Texas as a... Uh, or, or somewhere else in the South as we're leaning into this. Uh, but you do have, our hearts are black and blue. That's something that's sort of a little more evocative of that traditional style. Or I see angel, devoted. How do you th- just think about the, are you limited in your vocabulary if you're trying to do something in a more or less traditional style that you can't have? Even if you're going to express something like, I've got a worrying mind or something. You can't just write a stream of consciousness. It seems like a lot of bizarre stuff would come out that unless you're Robin Hitchcock or something, you don't put over a country song.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I have thought about that, like writing a very traditional sounding country song and using the words like iPhone or something or texting or it sounds that's part of our today culture, but it feels like it would be wrong in a way. I don't think it would because I'm not one for rules and, and I'm not a purist at all in musical genres. I I believe in like evolution and growth and taking traditions to a new place, but I don't think that's a conscious thing. I think it's just what feels, maybe it's, you know, the attachment that you have from listening to songs that your melodies are kind of reminiscent of. And so there's a certain vocabulary that just feels commonplace with it. Yeah, that's not something I've really consciously examined yet until right now.
0: That don't make our love untrue. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) As opposed to, you know, that was really neurotic. What you did, you know, you can't use (laughs) three syllable or longer words that you might when you're speaking.
1: Yeah. Unless you want to just
0: make it a geeky song.
1: There are certain things in recent years I've thought of, you know, like that I used ain't a lot in the past. And I don't really use that in conversation. So it feels, I don't feel like I would say ain't that often in songs now. Yeah. Now that you're saying this, I have like just thinking of the songs that I was working on before I start, got on this ball. I was, I was kind of looking at the lyrics thinking, Oh, this is some new vocabulary that I haven't. And I feel like as a songwriter, I've pushed myself recently under the guise that I think my older songs were within a certain range of vocabulary. And maybe it is because I was really pulling from specific influences that i'm kind of growing out of in a certain way
0: well in that bit i pointed out in worrying mind of the down on my knees i sit and pray just like all those words are in a traditional country song but not in that order right yeah (laughs) Yeah. you don't sit down on your knees that's not a normal phrase
1: true and i mean i was thinking about that the other day because i you know a common like in old songs or like bluegrass like lay my burden down or lay my body down and like I hear those a lot and I always think I would never say that. I, so if I ever write a song where I say that, <laughs> call me out on it.
0: I don't know. Whenever I think that I would never, I think I finally use the word lobotomized in a song after making fun of the Ramones for years. <laughs> and like, it just seemed okay there. You know, if you don't mind a little... A little absurdism or, you know, conscious scraping against that chorus of worrying mind. Like that sounds like you're starting with a country trope, but you're doing something a little modern with it. And if you put the word iPhone in there, well, that would be even more radical, you know, if you could do it without it actually being clunky, which I can't picture.
1: Yeah, that's a challenge. I think for sure. I haven't yet done that. We'll see.
0: (laughs) Tell me before we introduce the last song, are, are you already? working on the next thing? Are there a pile of songs? How much backlog? Are are you empty now?
1: No, I have, you know, I wrote a lot for this last record and there's quite a few songs that I didn't use or didn't finish that I haven't revisited. So I am in that place where I'm starting to feel ready to write again. I'm not someone who's constantly writing. I constantly am coming up with ideas, but I'm not finishing songs. So it's been a while since I've finished a full song probably a few months but i am feeling excited to get to start writing and think about the next record i'm sure it won't be for another year or so since i till i record again but i don't want to feel rushed but i'm excited to start thinking and hopefully writing some songs that i like
0: well just the fact that you you just said you were working on something right before we got on you're obviously in the middle of a press push now which i would think would be a good excuse to not do anything new because you know you're touring and you're pressing and all that stuff. So that's great that you don't necessarily have to be thrown in a cabin, you know, stranded at your cousin's house to write a song.
1: Yeah, I want that. I'm looking forward to it cuz now it feels very fragmented and squeezed in when I can cuz it is really really busy right now. But there's like this feeling this yearning of, I miss you songs, wherever you are, the new ones that are coming. I can't wait to meet you (laughs) whenever I have enough time to really fully realize you.
0: Well, that's a great sentiment to wrap up on. Let's uh, just introduce. So I wanted to put another one from the new album, you know, one of the catchier ones and Child of the Wind is a great single. I I thought this one, Somebody Knew, is the one that most immediately kicks me in the gut. So
1: Mm So that's a painful one.
0: (laughs) Well, and it's from the point of view of the person who's doing the dumping, which does not seem normal, not often seen in country music, at least not from a female perspective. I guess there's a lot of, I got to get on the road again. Sorry, lady. (laughs) You know, songs like that in the canon.
1: From the female perspective, it's a lot of... That asshole hurt me. I'm an innocent victim. And I understand those songs. I understand that feeling. But I also I think maybe because I'm so contemplated and examining, I'm always like, well, there's way more to the story than that. And where are the songs where the narrator is the asshole? Because that's real life. I find myself yearning for so many other sides to stories that I I feel like we haven't yet heard enough of. All
0: right. Here is somebody new from Desert Dove. Thank you so much for doing this.
1: Thank you.
0: Thanks so much to Michaela. Michaela is the kind of guest that revives my belief in my format. She was just so willing to think through things in real time and really reflect on the idiosyncrasies that go into individual creative choices. I had recorded this shortly after talking to Marty Wilson Piper, who was someone that I had tried to get for a long time, was very excited to have on and ended up being a little resistant to those kind of questions, which made me feel a little silly in asking them, because really, what is the creative process? You just put your hands places. You mess around with things. You try things until something sounds good. You don't necessarily know why it sounds good. I know there are no good answers to these types of inquiries, but I still find it a lot of fun to do them. And actually, Marty, when we posted the interview, put a really nice long Facebook post about the experience of doing the interview that really showed that he appreciated what I was trying to do. So that also made me feel much better about proceeding with this podcasting endeavor. Now, it was November 20th that I talked to Michaela of 2019. It is now the end of January. I'd really like to get caught up and release more of those episodes, but I'm going to stick to my every two weeks thing. Hopefully, unlike this time, have some advertisements that allow us to pay our editor. I have since recorded four more interviews that are all very good, very thoughtful guests. The next one is Julie Slick, very different kind of musician, but also very talkative, very revealing of her processes. I just a couple days ago recorded with Matt Wilson, whose original band in the early 90s that was signed to a major label was Trip Shakespeare, which then evolved into Semisonic that I'm sure you've heard of, led by his brother Dan Wilson. I'm not talking to Dan, I'm talking to Matt, who's a brilliant and entertaining guy. I've got three more interviews lined up, really trying to keep them to one every two weeks, if not longer, so that I can catch up on my releases. But we'll see. If you have any suggestions, if you want to put yourself forward feel free to email me at mark at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. Now, since there were no ads on this episode, this has been nothing but a sunk cost for me, which I know every listener wants to hear about. It's my little way of guilting you into going to patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. Be one of the select few to sign up to actually support this thing. And of course, you should support the artists as well. Michaela can use your dollars to make more wonderful music. Thanks so much for listening. Keep on musicin'. Until next time, this is Mark Vincent Meyers, signing off.